This morning, the Word of God in Second Peter 2 gives us a warning about a real problem that can affect and really harm local churches and individual believers. And uh, we're going to see some good lessons from some gross leaders. Uh, I put leaders in quotes because they're not really Christian leaders. They kind of pretend to be Christians. They're Christian fakes who are in the religion business for all the wrong reasons. And uh, Peter's warning us about these folks, and they've always been around on the fringes of Christianity. Uh, some of these folks, as I say, primarily just claim to be Christians. They're really not. Others are just popular in the culture, and Christians embrace them. I'm thinking of somebody like Deepak Chopra, or how about... Uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, if you were a Beatles fan, you'll know who he was. And uh, because the Beatles like some of the stuff he said, a lot of people, uh, like, including a lot of Christians, kind of considered him a good source. But we're going to see that Christians and local churches, including this one, should know about the faults of these kind of false teachers so we can avoid them from influencing us. And let me read the passage we're going to look at and try to simplify this morning. We start right in the middle of verse 10 at a new sentence. And what he's saying is these false teachers, the entire chapter of chapter 2 is talking about, are daring. That is, they're brazen, they're headstrong, and they're defiance against God. They're self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. They'll stage false exorcisms and other things where they're claiming to order around spirit beings that are much more powerful than they. Whereas angels, good angels, who are greater in might and power than any human false teacher, do not bring such reviling judgments against certain extra-powerful demonic forces before the Lord. But these false teachers he's warning us about, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will, like the destruction of those creatures, wild, dangerous animals, also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they will count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Even the Roman, ancient Roman culture didn't get drink, didn't get drunk and debauched in the middle of the day. They waited until the sun went down. They are stains and blemishes. The original language could be translated scabs. Reviling in their deceptions. Aren't you glad you came to church today? And this is a cheery topic. As they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing the unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed creatures. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, who sold spiritual authority for the highest bidder. But he received a rebuke for his transgression, that is, Balaam did in the Old Testament, from a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man who restrained the madness of that prophet. These false teachers he's warning us about here are springs without water, mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they're very impressed with themselves, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from these who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements, defilements defilements, easy for me to say, of the word of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened then to them according to this true proverb A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, a pig, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. 
we will now close in prayer. Now, actually, what we're going to do is try to show you how this practically does relate to us. He's using very graphic language. This is an unusual passage, although it sounds remarkably similar to the middle of the book of Jude. Uh, they're talking about the same thing. And the revulsion you ought to have toward these type of people uh, really can and should be righteous indignation. You know, one reason people don't like to come to church is because they think everybody who's in uh, in the Christian church is in it for the money, in it for all the wrong reasons. And there have been and always will be people associated with visible Christendom for that reason. He's describing these people. God doesn't like them. You shouldn't either. And yet, strangely, we often allow ourselves to be influenced by people like this in certain ways. Okay, That's what we're going to talk about today. But let's pray that we'll be teachable to this unique but important portion of Scripture. And as is our custom, let's pray for our military, our peace officers, and our firefighters. Okay? And uh, Ken, would you lead us in prayer in that direction? Well, to lighten things up just a little bit and to warm up our capacity for abstract thought. Last week I tried some, I tried puns with, puns with punch. And they didn't have much punch. So we're going to try again. These are more puns, hopefully with more punch. Why was Boaz so bad before he met his wife? Because he was ruthless. No Ruth. What did Noah say after he loaded the last animal onto the ark? Now I've heard, H-E-R-D, everything. I thought that would be the reaction to that one. And here we go. Which of the 50 states is mentioned in the Bible? Well, in Genesis it says, Noah looked out of the window of the ark and saw the rising waters. That's Arkansas. All right. The book of Second uh, Peter is short but powerful. It's like uh, a big arch over a three-story building. In chapter 1, we're talked, told about the holiness, the wholeness we ought to bring, the worship of Christ as the center of our entire Christian experience. Chapter 2, we're talking about heresy. And I'm going to say we're talking about hard heresy. And our visual aid for chapter 2 is that. That's a, that's a C that's very hairy. That's the letter C. That's a hairy C. We're going to look at some really slimy false teachers that, Zach, as you grow up, you're going to, some people are going to think you've got three heads because they've seen some of these slimy false teachers who aren't even really Christians but pretend to be. And they're going to think since you're a Christian, you're kind of like them. So it's important for you to realize that's the way a lot of people see us in our culture. It's so, so important to realize that as weird as it sounds, quite often we allow people like this in some ways to influence us as Christian churches and as Christians. And that's pretty, pretty tragic. Yeah, so we're in chapter two. We've seen beware the fact of false teachers a couple weeks ago. Beware of the final doom of false teachers last week. And today we're going to talk about be aware of and beware of the faults of false teachers, right? So the overall message of this book is saying if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, for Zach, for James, for Jan, a Christ-centered hope looking to the future beyond the now should motivate believers right now on planet Earth to embrace a lifestyle of true holiness and to avoid the heresies, the heresies, doctrinally and morally of false teachers. And we're going to look at three major faults of false teachers based on this passage, not so that we can get more information, but so we can avoid allowing their faults from influencing us. Okay? First thing we learn about false teachers in this passage is false teachers overrate their spiritual authority. Let's read those verses again. Middle of verse 10 through the middle of verse 13. Now, the New American Standard starts this way. Daring, self-willed. Just starts with kind of um, noun, noun kind of th- ideas, but... Who's, who's daring? Who's self-willed here? Got to go back to the context. Go back to verse 1, 2, and 3 of this chapter, okay? But false teachers, uh, false prophets in the Old Testament arose among the people of the Old Testament, just as there will also be false teachers 
among you, New Testament believers, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying who and what Jesus is, the master who bought them, bringing swift and certain destruction upon themselves spiritually. But look at this, Blanche. It says, many, a good many people will follow their sensuality. And by definition, these false teachers are trying to influence the church. And he's saying, many. I don't think it's a majority, but a good many, not one out of a million, but five or 10 or 15% of Christians will be influenced by some of these people. Many, a good many, not just one out of a billion, will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the believers that allow themselves to be influenced by these folks or send money to them or whatever, the way of the truth, Christianity generally will be maligned. And the rest of the culture won't want to have anything to do with us. And in their greed, they will exploit you, that's all y'all, in the church that buy into or are too naive to realize the problem with some of their things they're saying and doing. They'll exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Yeah, chapter 2 is describing these false teachers who will influence real Christians. So here's the thing. Connie, the uh, the false teachers you talk about in this chapter are not really... Christians, but they will really influence some real Christians, and that's too bad, but it's just a fact. I'm reminded of what President, the late, great Abraham Lincoln said, you can fool all of the people some of the time, you can fool some of the people all the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time, right? Now, let's continue reading. So these false teachers, these fake Christian teachers, are daring, brazen, headstrong in their defiance against God. Self-willed, it's all about them. All about uh, their preferences and their programs and their personality. They do not tremble. They're so self-impressed. They don't tremble when they have their false exorcisms or claim to be ordering demonic and angelic forces around when they revile angelic majesties, whereas good angels, real angels, like Michael the archangel cited in the book of Jude, who are much greater in might and power than any human teacher, do not bring such a condescending approach, do not claim to have personal power over demons. It's only God's power that they use to counter those forces. But these false teachers like unreasoning, you could translate that word irrational animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, they're reviling where they have no knowledge, will, like the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They will count it a pleasure. They have no shame to revel in the daytime. They're not even discreet in what they're doing. If you look closely, you'll be able to figure it out. False teachers overrate their spiritual authority. We saw back in our context that they'll be among us. They'll deny the master who bought them. They'll under uh, undermine and water down who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He's the God-man Savior. He's the only Savior. What did he do? He died a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, rose again literally, bodily, supernaturally to validate that payment. What's he going to do? He's going to end history on God's terms supernaturally. Next chapter, chapter 3, he's going to point out how the world scoffs at that in the first century. They're really scoffing in the 21st century. It was going to happen. But while they will fool some Christians, they're not going to fool God or escape his notice. So these false teachers are way too impressed with their own abilities, their own power, their own personal charisma, intelligence, education, ordination, right? Um, and we could say this. They overrate themselves so much through fake exorcisms and supposed authority over angelic beings they revile invisible, super-powerful, angelic forces based on their powers, their prerogatives. And this is what I would call super-spiritual hubris. Now, let me tell you something. That's the first time in my entire pulpit ministry that I've ever used the word hubris before. But I just found out what it means. 
And I thought it fit here very nicely. Now, how did I figure out what it means? I went to dictionary.com is what I did. I'm not sure where you go. But hubris means excessive pride. Hey, Blanche, what do we know about God and human pride, period? Just say human pride. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. I mean, to be saved, you got to be humble enough by the unction of God, unction of God, to recognize you're a sinner, you break not only God's standards, but your own at your worst, and you can't fix it. And most human beings won't buy that, especially in this culture. It's always somebody else's fault when they do something wrong, and if there is something wrong, they can fix it, right? So God resists the proud. Hubris means excessive pride, okay, Clay? Now, Clay, you got a lot on the ball, man. You've been given so much, man. You're an amazing package. But never forget, it's got everything you've got, you've been given, Right? Um, sometimes the people with the most strongest strengths are the ones who tend the most to this hubris, excessive pride, excessive self-confidence, excessive arrogance. You've got nothing God hasn't given you. And so much so they're faking things like exorcisms, and boy, that impresses people all day long, man. Uh, it's always on the video. You can't reproduce it in the laboratory, but uh, they're claiming to have all this power based on their own authority, their own personality, their own education, their own intelligence quotient, uh, whatever they're claiming to be. You know what? I think legitimate ministers realize the only authority we've got, the only authority James has or I've got, is the authority of the Word of God, as we're correctly understanding and teaching it, and the authority the Board of Elders gives to us. Because I think you don't want to go to a church, and there aren't many, where the pastor controls the church. I mean... The pastor needs to submit to a board, a group of godly men. You always have elders in every church and individual teaching pastors. And I've got some, maybe a calling and some gifting and some training. Uh, Dale doesn't have, but I serve under Dale and Mike and Ron and Homer. And I'm one of the elders too. I think they've recognized that I have those qualities. But I'm one of five, and four against one loses every time, right? I mean, you know, and I think that's important. Uh, the Apostle Paul, after preaching the gospel at the first missionary journey, goes to Jerusalem to submit his gospel to the apostles because there had been controversy. He was telling dirty Gentiles, you don't have to become a Jew first before you can believe in the Jewish Messiah. You can just believe in the Jewish Messiah and be saved as you are. And that was shocking to some legalistic Christians on the fringes so Paul said, I'm going to submit my gospel to the apostles, okay? I've got accountability, not just to God, but to human structures God has placed over me, okay? So the first thing we learn, Franny, about false teachers in this passage is they overrate their own spiritual authority. They forget whatever they do have has been given them by God. Now, the second thing we learn is that these kind of false teachers, these especially hard heretics, overlook their own spiritual weaknesses. They rationalize or redefine them away. They're pretty good at finding yours or talking about some of yours, but they're not so good at, in fact, they're terrible at recognizing their own. They overlook their own spiritual weaknesses. Look at the middle of verse 13 through the end of verse 16. They are stains and blemishes. In New American Standards, too nice there. The original language says scabs scabs are gross, okay? They're necessary, uh, but they're gross, you know? They're stains. They're scabs. Plus, Carol, there's that alliteration I like so much. Stains and scabs. Why wouldn't you want to say, why wouldn't you want to say stains and blemishes? When you got that alliteration built into the text, okay? They're stains. They're scabs. You go, ooh, yeah, that's a, that's a reaction he wants you to have. Uh, reveling in their deceptions. I'm thinking of Marjo, Marjo Gortner. We'll show you a picture of him in a minute. Uh, he was really a bad one. As they carouse with you within, uh, you know, your fellowship, but not openly, but as they interacting with you before, during, and after services even. As, and the bigger the better. They, these people sometimes draw big crowds. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Marjo was an expert at that. Having a heart trained in greed, accursed creatures, forsaking the right way, 
They've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam. We'll talk about him in a minute. The son of Baor, back in the book of Numbers, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke from his donkey. He's got a talking donkey correcting him. That was a class A miracle. We can't reproduce that in the laboratory, but it really happened. Speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of that prophet. False teachers like this, really hard heretics, rationalize their own lust and their greed uh, to pursue illegitimate sexual and or financial excess. Outwardly, they play the part of dynamic spiritual leaders, and they generally have great personal charisma, but inwardly in their hearts they're spiritually rotten and self-absorbed. Now notice the reference to Balaam there. If you haven't read Numbers recently, uh, you may forget Balaam uh, leveraged his spiritual influence uh, in order to gain personal wealth and pleasure. He sold his influence to the highest bidder to curse the children of Israel. Now, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those are the first five books of the Bible. Why in the world would they call a book of the Bible Numbers? A lot of people don't know that, but I think it's a fascinating story. What happens is after Moses leads Israel, the children of Israel, out of Egyptian bondage, they go to an oasis just south of the Promised Land, a staging area called Kadesh Barnea, and they're planning the invasion of the Promised Land according to God's directions. A long story short, in the first chapter of the book of Numbers, they actually count up the number of fighting men in the forces of the children of Israel. And when you add up the numbers, you got 603,550 men under arms at Kadesh Barnea, the Exodus generation. God says, go get them. Uh, they're too big to miss. But the Israelis looked at them and they said, no, they're too big to hit. And that whole generation refused. They didn't feel like they had enough physical force because they're depending on their own powers to defeat the Canaanites and they just flat refuse after seeing God open up the Red Sea Trey and they all didn't they saw that and they were saying well you know it'd be nice to take the promised land Lord we appreciate that but we only have 603,550 soldiers we can't do it they're just too big to hit we're not going to do it that's the first number Julie in the book of Numbers at the end of the book of Numbers, 40 years later, after that whole generation dies out, the children of the Exodus generation, they coalesce, they have a census of their fighting forces, and they have 601,730. They have about 2,000 fewer. They have fewer forces. It's not a lot fewer, but it's fewer. And the point is, that's the group that under Joshua went into and conquered the promised land. The point is, the problem was not the first generation didn't have enough numbers. They had enough numbers if they were going to lean on the Lord to empower them. They just refused to trust in the Lord to enable them to do His will. So that's why you get that. Let's talk about these, some specific examples of modern-day false teachers. There was a gentleman by the name of Marjo, Marjo Gortner who was raised by grifters, religious grifters. It happened to be uh, hyper-Pentecostals, but uh, that could have happened in the Southern Baptist circles or could have happened in the Bible church circles. This happened to be uh, that setting. And he was one of those little kid preachers. You know, this kid was a musical genius he could play the piano behind his back when he was like four years old. I mean, some people are just giving those kind of gifts. And his parents pushed him forward and had a big tent and had drew big crowds. This is before the internet and Facebook. And he was this nationally well-known child progeny, a genius musician, preacher person, preaching hellfire damnation. Uh, and as he got a little bit older, and it was a total fake, his parents nor him believed any of this stuff. They're just in it for the money, and they made a lot of money. As he got a little bit older, he split from his parents. He continued the show, but he eventually got tired of it, and he was so full of uh, 
let's say, arrogance. He was convinced he could become the biggest thing in Hollywood, the biggest thing in entertainment. He didn't need this Christian gig anymore to get rich and famous, although he was rich and famous financially. He was going to get get rid of all this Christian stuff and just go to Hollywood and become a movie actor. But he wanted to cash in on the Christian, he called them suckers, meaning naive pigeons. And he hired a film crew to follow him for his last national tour. And they showed not only the preaching, but the carousing with some of the young teenage girls behind the scenes before, during, and after the shows, the drinking, the drug use, all of this. He happily filmed while pretending to be legit. And after, at the end of that last uh, crusade, he announced he was leaving the ministry, and boom, this movie comes out. And it won in a special kind of uh, short documentary category. It won an Academy Award. I mean, the world loves stuff like this. The world loves to find these total fakes that are in this thing for the for the money. And he ended up, if you if you Wikipedia him, he died a couple years ago. But you know, he ended up. Uh, he appeared on Hollywood Squares a lot. He was in some B movies. He had some record albums and stuff, but he never really made it. But he was really tight with Hugh Hefner and these kind of people because they just love these guys that are total fakes. And the implication is all the preachers are either total fakes or they're so stupid they actually believe this stuff. Okay, um, His impropriety tells me nothing about Christianity. It just tells me about the depravity of man, which the Bible teaches and we preach and a lot of people are offended by. But I would just say he'd be an example. Uh, Peter Popoff, who's still alive on cable television, he's been proven to be a fraud multiple times. W.V. Grant, who I think is finally out of the religion business after multiple felonies. Uh, these things kind of happen. Then there's another one more recently. Now, this is the cover of a, a really good magazine. It's called the Christian Research Journal. And I know you're going to look at that and say, well, how dare they do a, 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 a unflattering caricature of this lady. Her name is Gwen Shamblin. Well, because that's actually a very attractive caricature because this is her from her wet, this is her from her church page. She's invented her own church now. It's Restoration Fellowship. It teaches things nobody's taught in the history of the Christian church. But anyway, I'll tell you who she is in a second. This, and that's from restorationfellowship.org. This is from gwenshamblin.com. She just likes ex- extravagant hairdos. And he, listen, I'm the last person to criticize anybody about their hairdo, okay? Because I don't have any. But boy, if I had hair like that, I would tease it up to it. It'd be pretty good. But anyway, that's the cover of a legit Christian journal that evaluated her. Long story short, I know I've told this story a couple times, but about 10, 15 15 years ago, uh, this lady burst on the evangelical Christian legitimate scene because she had a book called The Way, W-E-I-G-H, The Way Down Diet. And it was it was published by Nelson Publishers, and because I can't, James and I try to read everything ever written about Christianity, and we've read almost everything, but we can't read everything. So you kind of let the publishers who publishes these books, when you've got Zondervan or Moody or or Nelson, some of these very legitimate, well-respected publishers, they supposedly vet all their authors and make sure they're for real. And so I didn't read the book. But the essence of the book was uh, being fit is an important part of your spirituality. It, it shouldn't be divorced from your spirituality. I, somebody like Peg can teach you, I think, biblical principles and medical principles and a good in, in the uh, it's not the diet, but the live it plan. You want to die, you want to live it, right? And this lady can tell you how to do that in a legit way. But anyway, Gwen Shaman came out. And basically, I didn't read the book, but I read some uh, reviews of it, and she's just saying, hey, without putting a guilt trip on you, she's just saying, you know, just controlling, portion control, and not, you know, gouging on whatever, Cheetos, what else do I eat a lot of? Cheetos, cookies, brownies, M&Ms, jelly beans, and that kind of stuff's just not good for your body. You're supposed to take good care of the temple of the Holy Spirit. So anyway... This this way down program became real popular, and I'm going to blame it on Lisa Lemon since she's not here. <laughs> but as I remember, it may have been Donetta and Lisa. They wanted to talk to the pastor, and I thought, "Oh, great! What did I do this time?" Well, they they found this way down diet and book, and and I'd heard of it, like I said, 
Uh, but I wasn't going to push it. Uh, the preacher says, okay, ladies, you're all going on a diet. How's that going to go over, you know? Not good. So anyway, uh, Lisa for sure, it may have been Donette or somebody like that, sent me down and said, hey, this is good and this is great. And I said, you know, I've read some good stuff on it. Yeah, you want to do it you know, on Tuesday nights, you do it. And so they did it for like 10 weeks. And a bunch of people lost 5, 10, 15, 20 pounds. Uh, and it was great. And then, and so for about a year, this lady was real famous in our circles. And then she came out with her second book called Out of Egypt, Out of Exodus. Out of Exodus. Excuse me. I'm getting excited here. I know the topic, but the exact title of the book was Back to Egypt. Remember the Exodus generation? Almost as soon as they get out, they want to go back to Egypt, to how good it was in Egypt, you know? And she's she basically uh, took her mask off and basically denied the deity of Christ, denied the sufficiency of the death of Christ to save, denied the Trinity, said that the only reason she did the way down program was so she could get in the back door of evangelicalism to expose all of she called us what she call us uh little local little local pastors she wanted to get around those little local pastors you know that actually believe in the deity of Christ you know salvation by grace through faith like you don't earn it you don't deserve it is believing in Jesus that saves you uh turned out she was a heretic from day one admitted so Nelson immediately after they sold you know 10 million copies I don't have the exact number but a lot of the first book the way down program they released this second book and then she kind of gave this press conference and here's what I really believe well they they were number one very embarrassed because that shouldn't have happened. They shouldn't have let that happen. Number two, they had to buy up all the books. They didn't want to sell the books to promote her program. And so, uh, and I, I love this because I didn't actually do this, but uh, I did have to get in the pulpit after this became a big deal. And some people don't read Christianity Today and stuff like that. So I, I got up in the pulpit and I said, "Hey, I got I got bad news. You know that program, and I proved this, and we did it, and." And some of you lost like 25 pounds on this thing. Well, it turns out Gwen's a heretic, and we're not going to teach the second book. In fact, you can't get the second book. Uh, Nelson's uh, pulled them all up. Uh, and I said, hey, if you lost a lot of weight, you got to gain it all back. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, it, was, it was totally illegitimate. No, you, you didn't have to gain it all back if you didn't want to. Uh, but, yeah, so this, this stuff happens today. And I kind of hate to name names too much, but if you don't, it doesn't seem real. Okay, Franny, what have we said? Well, this passage says that these kind of really hard heretics, these these false teachers like Marjo, like Gwen Shamblin, overrate their spiritual authority, especially over these little local pastors. Not that that bothered me at all. Um, overlook their spiritual weaknesses and oversell their spiritual value. Look at verse 17. These are springs... Without water. Hey, Zane, what do you think about springs without water during a drought? Well, that's the worst thing in the world when you see this big dark cloud coming or something. You think you're going to get it rain, you don't get it. It's just, they're fakes. They're phonies. Uh, misdriven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. You know, I think there are levels of punishment in hell, levels of reward in heaven based on the fruit of our salvation, based on our depravity. I think some of these people are down there next to Hitler. Um uh, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity. Sounds like, uh, I will do this, I will do that. You know, the, the five I wills of Satan. Uh, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, by making you feel good. Not necessarily sexual sin, although they're involved in that typically. An amazing herd church, Restoration Fellowship, has been apparently replete with a lot of uh, sexual sin, as it turns out. Uh, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, from those picky rules or if it feels good, don't do it, which isn't a good way to live, you know. There's a balance. If it feels good, don't do it, doesn't make sense. If it feels good, do it, doesn't make sense either. If it feels good and it's a good thing to do and it's not illegal, immoral, uh, then maybe do it in balance. You know, all things in in uh, moderation, including moderation. Promising them freedom when they themselves are slaves of corruption for by what a man is or a woman is overcome by this, they are enslaved. For after they've escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and overcome. The last state, their final position, is worse for them than the first. 
would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, at least pragmatically, than having known it to turn away from the Holy Commandment, their eyes wide open, handed down to them. This happened to them according to this proverb, which goes back to Proverbs 26 in the Old Testament. A dog returned to his own vomit, and a pig, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. These folks are shameless in their self-promotion, awed by their plans, their programs, their preferences, totally blank out on yours and God's, and blind to how finite and flawed and weak they actually are. It's all about me, me, my ministry, my plans, my programs. God told me this. God told me that. I don't care what you said or anybody else says. Uh, I heard one guy who's almost in this category, not quite, quite, one time on television, he said, I want you to give the biggest financial gift you can give to me and then double it. I went, huh? I mean, that's like giving the coaches that want you to give 110%. Technically, you can't do that, you know, much less 200%. Um, and they, they also devalue the local church. These folks either promote their church, and they're usually parachurch. They really devalue the local church. Now, let me say a word about specifically verses 20 through 22. If after they've escaped the defilements, they go back, they're worse off. What does that mean? One tough passage, two possible meanings. Possible meaning one. If describing the really hard heretics, the false teachers that are generally the subject of this passage, then these unregenerate, these fakie, counterfeit Christians had escaped the defilement of the world in the sense by overtly associating, at least when people are watching, with the Christian church and with Christians, Marjo wasn't fornicating on the platform during preaching services at least, right? Um, they, at least in those settings, seem to be affirming in some sense some kind of Christian morality, but as their true nature was lived out in their personal lives and teachings, and even worse, Marjo had it all filmed before, during, and after the services, during his last tour, uh, they're worse off theologically and pragmatically than before they first identified with the church, even though they never really were believers. That's, and that is certainly true, and it may be what that's talking about there. However, it's possible he's talking about regenerate, but spiritually naive Christians here who have allowed themselves foolishly to be influenced by false teachers. Maybe they're sending them money, they're enabling them uh, to do their thing. These born-again but misled spiritual babies have escaped the defilement of the world when they came to faith in Christ. But now, because of their allegiance to whatever level, to some of these slick, charismatic, personality-wise, seemingly powerful false teachers, these naive Christians are pragmatically worse off than they were before they were even saved. In the same sense that 1 Timothy 5 says, you know, if you don't, men, Christian men, if you don't provide for your family, you are worse than an unbeliever. That doesn't mean you're going to hell. It means even unbelievers know baby needs a pair of shoes. If you're sitting around when you're able to work and you don't to provide for your children, you're worse than an unbeliever. Even unbelievers know they're supposed to provide for their children at a pragmatic level. So this is one of those passages. I mean, I've looked at this five different ways. And you diagram the sentence, and you look at the Greek text, and usually you look at that, and, and one of the two options kind of jumps out at you. This is one of those rare occasions where they both have about the same amount of plausibility based on the context, because there is this reference from the very beginning of chapter 2 to believers that are influenced by these cats, but the overall emphasis is on these, can I use the word cat again? And there's nothing... I hate to, you know, say anything bad about cats there. Uh, I hate to associate with these, any animals, but except for pigs and dogs, I guess. Uh, now, talking about pigs and dogs, I mean, Nancy is a dog lover. And uh, I met some people in China that are dog lovers. They love them fried. They actually eat dogs in China. But uh, pigs, I mean, you know, what can I say? But in the ancient world, dogs and pigs were despised. So that's like the worst thing you could say about somebody. But, uh Yeah. So all I can say is, I don't have a position on that in context. I think they're both potentially true. I think there are naive Christians that help this these kind of people. 
And in some ways, pragmatically, they're worse off than smart unbelievers who wouldn't help these folks. But uh, more likely, he's probably talking about these folks themselves and the fact that they've been uh, identified with Christianity at some level. But here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. This book of Second Peter was written by a believer. His name's Peter. Peter, James, and John, the three closest disciples to Jesus. Right, James? Peter, James, and John. Uh, written by a believer, under inspiration, to believers then and now, first century, 21st century. And these are believers because they believe the gospel. Okay, The gospel is defined in 1 Corinthians. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you've taken your stand, that Christ died for our sins, and he was raised on the third day. That's what Zach believed. That's what Zach trusted Uh and today he testified through baptism. Baptism doesn't save Zach any more than wearing a wedding. This wedding ring wouldn't make him married to me or to my wife, right? It's just a symbol, but it's an important symbol. Now, that's the gospel defined. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Now, some people say, well, that's what Paul said about the gospel. Let's see what Peter, Peter wrote Second Peter, right? Let's see what, Franny, let's see what Peter says about the gospel. Go to uh, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10, we've got a snapshot of Peter, the same guy who wrote Second Peter, under inspiration, preaching the gospel. And let's see what he says the gospel is. I mean, Paul says it's the, the truth that Christ died for our sins, he was raised on the third day, and you're not having mental assent to the fact somebody named Jesus died and rose again. You're trusting that person for your personal salvation. You're, it's active, receptive trust. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. He did that for me. I trust him. I trust my eternal salvation to him because he died for my sins and rose again. Uh, Acts chapter 10. This is Peter preaching to a Roman centurion and his extended household. And look at verse 34. Acts chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Acts Chapter 10, verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter, the same guy who wrote First and Second Peter, and we're studying Second Peter 2 today. I must certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. He loves Gentiles just as much as Jews, immoral unbelievers as much as moral unbelievers. But in every nation, including the United States of America, the person who fears him, who seeks him, and does what's right is welcome to come to him. The word which he sent, the sons of Israel, God did, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He's Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place through all Judea in Israel, starting with Galilee, the northern area, after the baptism which John the Baptist proclaimed. You know of Jesus, the Nazarene, how God the Father anointed him with the Holy Spirit. So you got Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, all in one verse there. That's the Trinity with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God the Father was with him. And then Peter says, verse 39, we, the apostles, Peter, James, and John, and the other guys, are witnesses. We saw the things he did. We're not making this stuff up. It really happened. Of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews, generally, and in Jerusalem, the capital specifically, and they put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God the Father raised him up on the third day and granted him become visible, not to everybody everywhere, but to witnesses, the apostles and other people, including a lot of women, including 500 people at once one time during that 40-day period where he's appearing to people, who were chosen before him by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him. He wasn't just a spirit, he was a bodily resurrection after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us, to preach to the people, to tell people that he died for our sins and rose again. Somebody testified, this is the one who's been appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. He's the issue in the issue of eternal life. Watch this, David Bearden. Of him, the crucified, risen Jesus who died for your sins as your substitute. Of him, all the prophets, the whole Old Testament bears witness that through his name, who and what he is and what he did, everyone who believes in him Receives what? He only forgives the sins he died for. How many did he die for? How many of your sins were future when Christ died on the cross on April 3rd, 33 AD, according to Harold Hunter? All of them. How many of them are forgiven when you trust him as Savior? Well, Peter says, everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel. That's what we know for sure. You know, in the Bible, the main things are plain things. They get repeated a lot. 
Uh, some things are harder to understand. You hold them a little bit more loosely. I'm not going to pound the pulpit on exactly uh, what verses 20 through 22 are talking about. We're talking about naive believers or these really hard heretics, one or the other. Both could be true, but I know there's only one gospel, only one Savior, and that's my message, and I'm sticking to it. All right, we've been looking at the faults of false teachers, and Carol Wanzer and Ron Miller and Bobby Dudley and Pam Cox need to know about the faults of false teachers so we can avoid allowing those folks to influence us. Uh, now, here's the bad news, and you know I've noticed this, but it's just something I, you don't hear often from pulpits. Some real Christians, including some real Christian leaders, sometimes have some of these characteristics. They think or act like some of these toxic characteristics. They're not in this category, but many people are impressed by some of these characteristics. A person who's very charismatic, has a very powerful personality, who's glib, who enters every room mouth first, who has an opinion on everything, who has an answer for everything, who's often wrong but never in doubt, impresses a lot of people, including too many Christians. And that's one of the characteristics of these people. And sometimes Christian leaders who are legit realize by being like that and expressing that, they simply some people. Also, people who are quick to compromise doctrinal and moral truth, especially in our culture, Julie, are seen as flexible, realistic, sensitive, kind, and thoughtful. When you draw hard lines on doctrine and morality, man, you are repressive and backward, and who do you think you are, especially in our culture? So that's a tendency for some people with robes on or collars on or that get on a suit and get behind a pulpit to kind of be like that because they get a lot of positive feedback, even from Christian circles. Uh, people who stress the three or four things they think are super important and above everything else and everybody else's priorities are seen as decisive and strong leaders. Uh, but I figured out a long time ago, just because something that's secondary is really important to me doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be critically important for every other Christian, nor should I use that as a litmus test for looking down my nose at you because you're not as sold on Summit Ministries or Dallas Theological Seminary or Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary or Tomas Yanyas as I am. You know, I don't use those things as a, a spiritual litmus tests, but these really hard heretics do, and because you get a certain amount of positive feedback in Christian circles, if you have those characteristics, sometimes people prosper in Christian ministry, not because they're hard heretics, but because these kind of uh, character traits actually get them so much good feedback and so much uh, good uh, response. So beware of that. Also beware of taking the worst thing you've seen Pastor Brad do or say, or the worst thing you've seen James do or say, or the worst thing Billy Graham, now Billy Graham never did anything wrong. He was the only sinless person who ever lived, you know, except for Jesus, no? Uh, be, that's called totalizing, and that's a problem when you take, uh, you totally uh, characterize your conception of somebody based on the worst thing you've ever seen them do. As a pastor now for many years, I found out sometimes the people I feel like I've spent the most time trying to help through certain issues that are embarrassing or sinful, once the situation resolves itself, they tend to drift to the far fringes of the church because I think, and I heard another pastor tell me this, I think they tend to do that sometimes or even go to another church because they think every time I see them, I'm thinking about them sharing their worst moment. You know, I, I don't do that, you know. I really don't. I don't get up here on Sunday mornings and think, who's not here? Okay. Uh, what's the what's the worst thing I know about Carol? What's the worst thing I know about Michelle? Oh, oh man, yuck. You know, oh, Steve, man, terrible. I mean, I don't, I'm not wired. I don't think like that. I try to, you know, I have to, I, I, I try to forget stuff like that. I mean, it's in the past, man. I, I don't think in those categories, but I have seen that. Okay. Let's bring this to a halt. Here's the happy ending. False teachers overrate their spiritual authority. Let's not be impressed by our personal authority, by our personal abilities and powers. I picked on Clay earlier because he's got so much going. He's very bright, very motivated, uh, uh, got a good work ethic, has great parents, especially a great mother. 
has a really good pastor, you know, got a lot of stuff going for him. And I don't think we should say, oh, you know, I got nothing going for me. That'd be a false humility. I say develop your abilities, appreciate them, use and share them, but don't be impressed by what you've got. Everything you've got, you've been given. Uh, you don't be like a false teacher like that. False teachers overlook their spiritual weaknesses. Stop redefining and rationalizing your weaknesses, okay? Recognize them and build a hedge around them, you know? Isolate them, confess them, isolate them, and move on, right? Uh, let's not water down our convictions. Uh, that's a big issue, too, nowadays. I'm seeing people actually denying the substitutionary atonement of Christ for market share. They see this as a business. It's not a business. And finally, false teachers, these really hard heretics, oversell their spiritual value. Let's not buy what they're selling, okay? Um, I'm not a book burner, but if I did find a way down diet or back to Egypt, I might not burn it, but I'd wrap it up in a dark garbage bag, put rubber bands around it, put it in the dumpster. I'm not going to put it uncovered in the dumpster. I don't want anybody picking that baby up and reading it and promoting what, what somebody like that's doing. Okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, this passage reads in, in a very unusual way. I mean, this is a very unique passage. I mean, similar to, to Jude, too. But I mean, just it's different terrain than we're used to with all these really uh, kind of over-the-top descriptions. But we realize these these type of teachers, the Marjos of the world, the, the Gwen Shamlins of the world, the Maharesh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogis of the world, the Deepak Chopras of the world, they deserve that kind of, of strong denunciation because uh, of the way they think and the influence they can have, even on Christians, even on Christian leaders. But I thank you that as we look at this thing closely, there's real practical inf- information here that we all need to hear. And certainly... Uh, you know, the elders of, of our church need to keep this in mind. Let's not allow ourselves to be influenced uh, by these sometimes popular and well-promoted uh, kind of thinkers and, and leaders in our culture and even in our uh, Christian circles. Help us have enough discernment to be able to, to uh, uh, and, and have doctrinal and moral tethers that would keep us from drifting in those kind of directions. I want to pray for anyone here this morning, Father, who by your Holy Spirit has not seen and believed the gospel. Open their eyes to see their need. Uh, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. We got it. Righteousness, we need it. Judgment, it's coming. Uh, but help them to see in the person of Jesus Christ all they need for eternal salvation. He's done all the work and through faith in him alone uh, we can receive by your grace the gift of eternal life. Uh, for most of us, I pray that we would be encouraged and directed by your truth. Help us to understand it, believe it, and apply it. And we just celebrate with Zach and his family today as he's confessed his faith through water baptism. And we pray you'd go with us into the second hour now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.